Hello folks and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and continuing on from yesterday's episode on the life of Raymond Chandler, today I am once again joined by Tom Williams to talk more about his biography of Chandler, A Mysterious Something in the Light. Once again, a huge thank you to Tom for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to get a copy of his book, there is a link in the episode box below. And I think that's all I need to tell you today. No contextual cat names. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, I wanted to ask you more about about um, your explicitly about your your book and and start off with the the, the obvious catch-all uh, question of of where you first came across um, Raymond Chandler and, and what your first reaction was to his his work. So it was at university. I I was in a seminar series of seminars about crime writing and um, in the 20, 20th century crime writing. And I think it was our first seminar was about Raymond Chandler. And we had to read The Big Sleep. And, and I think it actually must have been our second. It must have been our second seminar because the um, I remember at the end of the first seminar, I can't remember what the book that we read in that one. But at the end of our first seminar, uh, the reading was set. It was go and read The Big Sleep. And if you have time, go and read uh, Phil, My Lovely. Mm. And I thought, okay, you know, never I've heard of Raymond Chandler, but didn't know a huge amount about him. Picked up the big sleep, and was just, you know, hooked. Yeah. Uh, and and went off and read the film, my lovely, and and you know, very quickly kind of devoured the rest. And just you know, then then on, he's he he became not quite an obsession, but he became a, a kind of regular topic of of investigation for me because he's such a his his books are wonderfully written evocations of person and place mm. they're problematic in a whole variety of ways but they are they are are, are great evocations of Marlowe and LA and this kind of cast of characters and then he himself through his letters and uh is is also a, you know Raymond Chandler is also a fascinating person and and it was just an honor and a privilege to spend six seven years digging into into the archives and reading his letters and, and just finding out more about him. Yeah. Uh, so at what point did you um, have the idea of, of writing a biography? It was it was shortly after reading the letters. Mm. And and then by this, I'd read the, uh, there were two other biographies before I kind of did mine and, and or decided to do mine. Uh, and I just didn't feel that the person that I was reading about in the letters and the person I was meeting in, in, in the other biographies were quite the same. Mm. and it's as simple as that really it kind of you know I wanted to know why that was and once I started digging in to it I I came up with some you know stuff that a a tutor of mine uh, from college called John Sutherland um, pointed me and he'd done some research and gave me some some of his research notes which was very valuable and pointed me in in some directions and then I spent some time in in, on the west coast of of the US and then in in Oxford Mm. and gradually the kind of a picture of somebody emerged and it was i i think different to the one that i'd been i'd, I'd understood before and and that was a book a story that i i thought was worth telling he, he's such an unusual figure for a, a author biography um in several ways but chiefly because the, the the writing he's known for doesn't start until a huge <laughs> portion of his life has 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 passed um, this is such an unfair question for a six, seven years project, but what was the <laughs> research process like? Did you have, um, was, it a, was there a sea of material to deal with and, or uh, where did you yeah. start? Yeah, so you start in a library. I mean, 
that's the the best way of mm. of like describing it. Raymond Chandler's papers have been gathered by by two universities. Um, those the, the the Bodleian Library in Oxford holds a set of papers, and the Special Collections Library at UCLA in Los Angeles also has a set of papers that they have been gifted or acquired over the years. And you know you start you start there, mm. and you know. The, Practically, what I I was I, I had to do was you 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 draw up a timeline, and you start piecing. You know, you're not reading the letters necessarily in chronological order, because it's hard to do, um, because the, they're all over the place in some cases, um, and you're piecing together someone's life, putting it you know, on a timeline. I, I I it isn't quite like one of those kind of you know conspiracy maps <laughs> where you have a, a map of a city on the wall and loads of red threads everywhere yeah but it, it's more because it's more like one long red thread yeah but you, you know that's how I, I kind of thought about it and I was very lucky in that I, I managed to find new stuff I was in often in the right place at the right time but you know as I was coming to the end of my research in LA they inherit they got gifted a set of papers which turned out to be the earlier set of papers the, the earliest letters that we knew of is letters from 1932, wow. which were letters between uh, William Lever, which is a friend he'd made in, in LA who moved back to South Africa, and Raymond Chandler. Mm. And they were you know, just amazing. Wow. And suddenly this whole shed a whole new light on a period um, between, uh, between 1932 and, and, and 1938. Wow. And um, how did your, have, having sort of... Um read the books first I suppose how, how did your impression of Chandler and the, the Marlowe novels change during the process of uh of putting together your biography so it's a really interesting question it's um, probably a really unfair one as well given how long it took <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's really difficult it's it's a generally difficult one to answer because I've got to be perfectly honest I have not read a Raymond Chandler novel since 2012 mm. you know so eight years but during that period of research, I was reading them repeatedly. Mm. And it's very difficult to kind of say, to kind of part, to pick apart that. Um, you know, but you're learning stuff about the history of the city and about the history of the person. So much of it, so one of the things I'm quite interested in, in is the way that, the way that creativity works. Mm. There is no such thing in my view as a creative spark. You know, there isn't like this finger of God that looms out of the sky and taps you on the forehead and gives you a a vision of you know a eureka moment. I mean, maybe that happens to some people, but I, I don't think I don't think really that that's how it works. I think the way that new ideas emerge and creative thought emerges is by right, wide understanding, uh, wide reading and, and and thinking, and you can't quite understand the the set of things that go together that unite a thought. Mm. into a moment of, of, of the turn a series of thoughts into an idea, basically. And so as you experience different things, you know, it could be kind of walking to the, to the bus and you see something on, on that route to work and that sparks a thought about a book you read that has nothing to do with Raymond Chandler or nothing to do with whatever, mm. but suddenly becomes really important and really relevant. You know, it just inspires this 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 idea, and I, I, so that, that's a very waffly way of explaining that that my ideas about Raymond Chandler evolved a lot. Mm. My ideas, my understanding of the novels evolved a lot as I learned more about his life and more about 
the history of LA and the history of the city itself, suddenly things that you might think are small and, and, and obscure actually become a lot more important. I think that's very true about, about his life, mm. but I think that's also true about the city itself. And, and, and my, my kind of real clear example of it, uh, is I think it's interesting that his, that mothers, there's a lot of fathers in, um, and father figures mm. in Chandler's novels, but there aren't very many mothers. In fact, there's only, there's only one, one character and that's in, in the high window. Yeah. She doesn't come off very well. It's terrible. I mean, mm. I, I find that very hard to imagine. Isn't some leaking out of Raymond Chandler's own feelings and mm. own thoughts about his mother? Not, not explicitly. And I'm not in any way saying that he hated his mother and that you know thought that she was vile in the way that is presented in the High Window. But I just think kind of moments like that, with set in the context of life, change the way in which you view both the life and the book. Yeah, you mentioned the um, the city, and there are mm. the. Well, I mean, mentioned the anecdotes about Hollywood, but there are just there's an absolute trove of extraordinary um, stories about Los Angeles on the up. Um, <laughs> the the camp, loads of stuff I'd I'd never heard of, like the campaign of um, Upton Sinclair. Um, yeah, the 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 murder case behind, um, well, not behind, but the the murder case that Chandler. Um, the, the Dahini case. Uh, no, I was I was thinking of the 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 one he uses as inspiration for the Cassidy case. Is it a Greystone Manor? Yeah. The, uh, is that yeah, the Tahini case? Where, yeah. 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 The secretary and the, uh, the secretary who ends up being accused of basically the murder suicide. A wealthy, exactly, a wealthy young man kills um, his secretary yeah. uh, and himself. And the secretary is the blame is pinned on the secretary because the the family is a wealthy family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, there are yeah. so many wonderful moments like that 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 feed not all as directly as that into the novels, but feel like extensions of Chandler's well Marlowe's um, Los Angeles. Um, it must have mm. felt at times, or 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 did it feel at times that you were writing kind of a biography of Los Angeles as well? Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, Los Angeles is the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating cities in the world, mm. because its history is so dark, and its image is so light, um, you know, and clean. Mm. It's um, the most, I think at one point, it was literally the most marketed city in the world. I think, it, it, you know, it was it was more attention was given to it than any other. And it was, you know, the PR and the, the advertising around it was amazing. And, and LA is LA is a place where people from outside of LA live, mm. particularly when Chandler moved there. You know, you had hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people moving in from all across the the, the, the continental United States. And the way that they could do that is because of, of, of the arrival of water. Mm. Um, water comes with the Mulholland Viaduct in uh, 1912, which is the same year that Chandler arrives, which is a nice kind of coincidence. Yeah. And that means that, that and, it, and before, before water arrives, the city can maximally hold about 100,000 people, which is its size at that time. And then water arrives and all of a sudden it become a megalopolis and, 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 you know, serve the needs of millions and millions of people. And so you had this city explode, but the, 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 the water deal was, was a corrupt one. They were stealing water from, well, they were taking water from Northern California 
<laughs> a bunch of people who knew about this water deal, this 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 this, this uh, aqueduct deal, bought up the land around where the <laughs> where the water was going to run because it was worthless. <laughs> sold the, the the LA government on uh, on this plan, and then made millions from the land. <laughs> Because the land which they bought was worthless, that they then put water through, suddenly became fertile and worth a lot more. And they made an absolute killing. And, you know, it was a completely corrupt deal. And that is at the, the kind of the center of, 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 of the birth of Los Angeles. Yeah. And yet, even today, because of Hollywood and because of uh, a number of other reasons, people think of LA as this beautiful, bright, clean place. And it's... It was for a long time anything but. Yeah. Uh, and it was full of corruption and it was full of decadence and bad dealings. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating place. I think that's one of the things that's most sort of memorable and enjoyable about the Marlowe novels is that it's so far from, well, that kind of thing wouldn't happen in a place like this type murder story. <laughs> it's not some sort of idyllic mm. little peaceful sleepy village where horrifyingly <laughs> murders happened. It's a city where there's something like that happening down every down every corner. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I just think is, is something that we as readers in the 21st century forget um, very easily is that in 1939, when The Big Sleep comes out, no one's really writing about LA mm. as a city. So uh, you have The Day of the Locust by Nathaniel West. That comes out, I think, in the same year as The Big Sleep. Sorry, in 1938. They both come out in 1938. So, you know, Los Angeles doesn't really figure in the imaginative landscape of many people mm. at that time in a way that it does now. I mean, we have all watched Blade Runner. Uh, and seeing the LA of the future. We've all watched Avengers and Iron Man 3, in which it's Malibu rather than LA, but which, you know, big chunks of, of, of California get blown up. You know, we're watching the, the terrible wildfires um, in California now. LA is really present, or California, mm. and to a lesser extent, LA, depending on what's going on there, is very, very present in our lives now in a way that it wasn't in 1938. And so China doesn't just write about the city he's kind of doing it for the first time he's, he's kind of inventing la yeah for the world california has been written about uh, a book by uh, called ramona mm. a lot of sentimental flop but nobody in my time had tried to write about the uh, Los Angeles background in any sort of realistic way. Now, of course, now half the writers in America live in California. <laughs> what might a reader of the Marlowe novels who knows nothing about the author be most surprised to find out about Raymond Chandler? I think that he's English, yeah. or that, well, no, that he was brought up in English in England. Uh, he's he's not English, sorry. He was, he was born in America, mm. but he was educated in English in England. And when I tell people that, they are often very surprised that this kind of person who is best known as 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 a writer of American prose mm. actually was educated and brought up for 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 his young in his young life in England. Yeah, 
we mentioned it to, um, towards the end of his when we're going through his life. But the I find it fascinating that he was more successful in the UK than the US. What what was it about him that the US didn't sort of take to? Was it too close to home, or was it? It's it that. That is a generally unfair question. I don't really know the answer yeah. to that. <laughs> um, well, I, don't, I don't have an answer to that. My, my guess is, I mean, the UK is a bit of a smaller, more controllable market. Yeah. And America is, a, you know, again, in the, in the 40s, you know, you're living through the war, you've experienced rationing, mm. along comes this kind of literary writer talking about Los Angeles and about sex and violence and yeah. all of the beautiful women and you know, it must have seemed like a fascinating place to 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 be, you know. Yeah. So so maybe maybe it's that. Maybe it's also that I think potentially as well a, a bit less competition in the in the market mm. uh, in the UK potentially, but America is. America isn't one country, it's yeah. hundreds of, of smaller countries. And, you know, it's, I spend a lot of time in the United States and it always shocks me how few people have heard of Raymond Chandler here. It's always really disappointing as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's not any, he's much better known in, 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 in the UK. Mm. My guess is that America just doesn't celebrate his achievements in quite the same way as, as we do in the UK. Mm. And that didn't really recognize the same value in, in his in his writing as, as the british did mm. but also because it's a smaller market and you know probably more controlled by by the kind of the gatekeepers of better controlled by the gatekeepers of publishing maybe yeah as well in the 40s um i'll i'll try and admit, make the last few questions a bit fairer that's a, a sequence <laughs> of, of uh of fairly unfair ones i was going to ask when you when you came to write your own biography is mm. do you um is it useful to take into account previous biographies or is it better to kind of sort of start from scratch? Yeah, an interesting question. I, I think you, I don't think you can entirely start from scratch. Mm. So it all depends on, on who, you're, who you're writing about. Frank McShane, who did the first book, was writing in 1976. So people who knew Chandler were still alive yeah. and their memories were fresher. And so he could talk to people I think when I was doing mine, there were some people still alive, but their memory, you know, it was a long time, it's mm. 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Harder to remember, memories weren't as good. I, I think if you were writing a book today, I don't think there's anyone who would still be alive who would know Roman Chandler, mm. or would have known Roman Chandler. So I think, I think to, to, with some, some people, you, you definitely have to factor in the existence of other books. I can't imagine a world in which you could genuinely start from scratch and le- when they have already written, been written about. Mm. Not saying that necessarily the first port of call is the book, but also there's a kind of practical thing. I, I don't think, certainly from my experience, I would read around a subject first mm. to decide, to, to understand if there is a book in there yeah. or not. So I would need to, it would be very hard to kind of think about a book read around the subject and avoid actively avoid the life of somebody else mm. if you see what I mean I'm, I'm thinking a lot about modernism right now mm. um I could give a concrete example and I am working on an idea about the kind of the, the beginnings of of, of modernism oh. and I have to kind of be pretty familiar with 
the lives of the writers, even though the thing that I might be writing is a biography. Mm. That makes sense. Um, I tell you one thing, it's very, it's almost impossible to read a biography while you're writing one. Yeah. I think that just because other people's style leaks in. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm working on a book, when I'm working on a biography, I'm actually in the kind of deep in the writing phase. I can't really, I can't really read other books about other writers unless they're directly connected to the thing I'm writing. Yeah, no, I imagine that must be, yeah, you want anything but. Um, you make a, a really interesting um, point in the book, which is to do with the the lost men in Chandler's life. Um, he, mm. he mentioned his father um, Morris, who just disappears off the map after their fairly turbulent yep. relationship with his mother, uh, Warren Lloyd later on, and then uh, and and you you suggest a link between them and the this sort of recurring lost men in the novels, rather like the the mm. mother. Thing. I, I was I was going to ask I was thinking as I was reading that how whether it was difficult or not to whilst you're writing a biography of a writer to I don't know balance out biographical detail and that sort of uh, veering mm. into literary critique because you, you can't not do that when sure. you're writing a biography of a writer so how, how does how is that sort of what's that like it's yeah it's a, it's I think that so when I was doing my a-levels mm. That was the thing you were told, right? You were told, you know, it doesn't matter. What matters is the words on the page. It doesn't matter about, you know, the writer's life at all. Yeah. And and that's because I think for for less sophisticated readers, um, as you are when you're 16, 17, 18, it's much harder to separate out the I in a first-person narrative mm. from the I, the author. So, so to a certain extent, that 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 idea gets a bit lodged, and there's definitely a kind of strand of uh, of modern critical theory that that maintains that view that the writer's life doesn't really mean anything. Mm. What matters are the the words that they leave on the page. I just think it's too hard to separate out the fact that these things happen to this person, and then these things happened in the books that they yeah. they write. And actually that's kind of what makes them interesting. It's one of, one of the things that is really interesting. Ultimately with a biography, you're, you're telling the set of sto- a set of stories about someone in the overall narrative of their life. And one of the stories you're telling is how they come to create the things that they create. Mm. Yeah, as I, I waffled on a lot about creativity earlier on. I don't think you can ever say, you can never draw a straight line between a moment in a novel or a poem or a play and an external event in a writer's life mm. because that's not how creativity works. It's not how the artistic process works. Mm. But that isn't to say that a line does not exist. And when parallels do appear in a life, I think it's worth asking a set of questions about the relevance of the life to the work mm. a favorite example of, of mine of this is is that is, is Shakespeare you know he, his son Hamlet dies shortly after he writes a play called Hamlet there's got to be something there hasn't there <laughs> I mean that's just too much of a coincidence now play Ham- Hamlet is about fathers and sons and familial relationships but it's not about you know a little boy who dies tragically mm. but there's there's an interesting question to be asked around the connection between Hamlet and Hamnut 
I think. And in any writer's life, there's a set of interesting questions to be answered, or to, uh, to be asked um, about the connections between their life and their work. Whether or not there is anything there is harder to say. Yeah. But that's part of the fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, speaking of the work, I was going to um, sort of wrap things up by asking you mm. um, if you did have a favourite Chandler line. We've spoken quite a lot about his um, life. It would almost be remiss not mm. to mention his fantastic zingers. I, said, I think I don't I can't I don't think I do have a favorite line there are too many because I think yeah exactly I mean it, it, it's like all things it, it it kind of depends on on one's mood mm. the question that gets I, I often get asked is a very similar one which is w- which one is my favorite Chandler novel and I, mm. I kind of have a similar answer which is that I have you know there's so many it just depends on my mood yeah, but I do think the way that Raymond Chandler wrote is that he wrote on these small index cards. I think they were 12 by six inches. And he wrote in these little chunks of text. And his goal was to always try to get a bit of what he called magic on every single one of those cards. And I think if you grab a Chandler novel and you thumb through it and put your finger on a, ra- on a random page, you will find something. It might not work all the time, and there are some real clangers in Raymond Chandler's fiction. Like he doesn't get it always right, but when he does, he really, really does. And I think it's testament to the way in which he he set about his 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 writing method of this that he always tried to get some magic in there. That's a very vague answer to your question, I'm afraid. No, that's um, a lovely, lovely uh, note. I, I found it really interesting to read about that and the, uh, the you know, just how. Uh, meticulous he was about that sort of 160 120 words whatever it was to make sure there was something good on every yeah index card yeah um, and so different to how we're trained to write today with these kind of like endlessly scrolling white pages yeah yeah um well that uh, that actually brings me to the end of my questions thank you so much for uh thank you it's been fascinating i haven't t- i haven't talked about raymond chandler for for a little while so this is is really really good i've enjoyed it thank you And that's all from us. A huge thank you once again to Tom Williams. You can find a link to his book, as I mentioned at the top, uh, in the episode box below. You can get in touch with Tom on Twitter. His handle is twilliams81. And you can get in touch with me at eareadthis at gmail.com or by searching eareadthis on any of the usual social media platforms. If you'd like to support the podcast, as well as access exclusive episodes, including our run on Chandler's novels following The Big Sleep, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash this. Thank you for listening, and until next time, happy reading.